are listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Michael R. Douglas, who's a theoretical physicist and professor at Stony Brook University, where he's a founding member of the Simon Center for Geometry and Physics. Currently, he's a visiting scholar at Harvard University, starting a group in computation, artificial intelligence, and mathematics. His research focuses on string theory, including the first solvable models of string theory, many connections between string theory and mathematics, and the development of statistical approaches to making predictions from string theory. Michael's PhD thesis is titled G mod H Conformal Field Theory, which he completed in 1988 at Caltech. We start with his PhD days at Caltech, where he worked and interacted with leading figures in the history of physics and computer science, including Richard Feynman, Jerry Sussman, and John Hopfield and developed interests in both physics and computation. From there, we talk about the first superstring revolution, a period of important discoveries which drew many physicists, including Michael, to work on string theory as a promising means for unifying physical theories. We cover various points along his research career in physics, then discuss his recent interests in machine learning, AI, and the future of science and mathematics. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thesis review, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis in the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Michael Douglas with G mod H conformal field theory on the thesis review. I also saw like this paper you had online called from algebraic geometry to machine learning. And you talk about, you know, your PhD days where Richard Feynman had a really influential course and it was called, or it was on physics and computation. And so yeah, maybe as like a window to start talking about uh, how you got started and your PhD days, kind of what, co- what what was this course about and why was this intersection interesting? Very, very good. Yes. So, uh, you know, just to, you know, really start with a little bit about myself and, uh, you know, my, my background. Uh, my father was a uh, mathematician at uh, Stony Brook for his, the, the most active part of his research career. So it was, it was almost inevitable that I would try to go into some sort of mathematical science. And uh, I, I had this decision to make because I had been interested in computers since I, I can't even remember when. And mm-hmm. uh, physics, the, you, know, the, you know, again, the, the, these deep uh, fundamental you know, secrets of nature, I think both uh, intelligence and uh, fundamental laws of nature are the two greatest uh, secrets of that sort that we want to uncover. 
And uh, so I, I fairly quickly in undergrad decided not to follow too closely in my father's footsteps and, uh, you know, so not literally do mathematics. And I was an undergrad at, at Harvard where, you know, the physics was extremely strong and the computer science was, was pretty good, but, uh, you know, not, not quite the physics. But uh, I, and, and then this was the period when particle physics really was the uh, dominant mode towards uh, un understanding these, you know, fundamental aspects of nature. And uh, I, I, I kept up. I had my, my roommates were actually all you know, computer science guys. And uh, so uh, I, I kept up and I spent my uh, senior year doing uh, really taking courses, not, not literally taking courses at MIT, but starting to go to seminars and, uh, you, know, you know, learn what was going on in, in, in fields like uh, linguistics and cognitive science and uh, AI. And uh, so the... Uh, you know, time came to apply for, for grad school, and I, I found myself having to choose between uh, Caltech and Princeton. And so I went out, to, you know, I went to both places, of course. And when I went to Caltech, I was brought to uh, both uh, meet Feynman in his office and uh, then to uh, this uh, course, which was the predecessor to the course that I'll, I'll talk about. And uh, of course, Feynman, it was amazing. You know, the idea that you, know, you could visit and just you know, walk into his office, you know, was, was already you know, sort of uh, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, he uh, you know, was very enthusiastic. He was learning uh, a lot about computers. I, I, I'm not sure he said this, but as I found out, his uh, son, Carl, was uh, getting his uh, master's at that point in computer science at MIT. And he was perhaps motivated partly by that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, he, you know, he encouraged, uh, you know, you know, he said how great, you know, Caltech was. But then, of course, he said, well, you know, but, you know, your choice is all great. You know, you should you should go where your girlfriend is going. And uh, so, you know, you can imagine, you know, his, uh, you know, if you, you know, read his books, of course, uh, you know, the, the, the way he would say that. And, uh, you know, it, it, it did inspire a kind of, uh, you know, already, you know, you know, tie that you, you you wanted to spend you know more time with this person, even though I didn't have a girlfriend and uh, would not for some time. But uh, anyways, the course in this this was in 1982 and or you know spring 1983, and and uh, the uh, course at that point was taught by uh, Feynman, John Hopfield, and Carver Mead. So. Uh, probably uh, three uh, famous names to, to your audience, you know, the Hopfield model of uh, neural networks and uh, Carver Mead, one of the, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, a great figure in VLSI and, and really one of the inventors was called the neuromorphic computing. And uh, so they had decided to uh, co-teach this, this course on, on kind of expanding the boundaries of computation in various uh, interdisciplinary ways with the physics and biology. And I, you know, went and uh, I, I think, uh, I, I can't remember where he was there or they were talking about, I think he had just, just left Danny Hillis, you know, had, had given a lecture there. And this was just obviously, you know, this was, this was the place where incredible things were happening. And uh, so I decided to go to Caltech. And, 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 and then I found out that uh, Jerry Sussman, who I had not met, but again, was one of these, uh, you know, legendary pioneers of AI, you know, student of uh, Marvin Minsky, who, you know, worked on, you know, you know, the, you know, you know some of the early you know, planner, you know, early, early AI. And then, of course, is famous for a scheme, you know, with uh, Guy Steele. 
And uh, so, uh, so I, I, I found out that he was coming to uh, Caltech that first year to, uh, his, uh, to, to take a year sabbatical and to work actually with uh, the astrophysicist. And what he wanted to do was build a computer to integrate the uh, motions of the uh, planets in the solar system according to uh, Newton's law of celestial mechanics. And, uh, you know, this, this also sounded very cool, you know, a chance to help uh, build this uh, computer, you know, find out, you know, things, things about, you know, astrophysics. So, uh, so all this, all this was, as you know, you know, you know, obviously, you know, my, my decision at that point was made <laughs> and, 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 and it all turned out to be very, you know, inspiring and influential and, and, and in some ways, the uh, basis for my career, despite the paradox that, uh, of course, when I went to, uh, when I made this decision, I'd never heard of string theory. Very few people had heard of string theory. Mm. And uh, I had, uh, you know, I, I was potentially interested in working in uh, particle physics, of course, but I, among other people, you know, had, was advised by uh, Chen Nin Yang, the, uh, you know, famous uh, physicist of, uh, you know, Li and Yang, who was at uh, Stony Brook. And my father brought had brought me to see him, and he said, "You know, you 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 know, it's very good to be interested in physics, but you should realize first of all that it's very competitive, and and, and second of all, you know, at least in my opinion, the discoveries are going to slow down because people can't just keep building bigger and bigger accelerators, and uh, so uh, without uh, data, you know, a science is is going to eventually run into trouble." And uh, he, I'm not sure he quite said this, but what he what he then did was to, to some extent switch to condensed matter. But uh, in any case, I, I took these words to heart, and I, I I went to this place, you know, Caltech, where there was this uh, you know incredible interdisciplinary spirit, you know, really the guiding you know spirit of Caltech, I would say, and uh, the possibility of still going back into physics but trying to work in this uh, interface. Feynman's course. Uh, was co-taught by Jerry Sussman when it got into the uh, more technical things. And in particular, they taught uh, programming using uh, Scheme. And uh, so uh, once I started working, you know, Sussman called for volunteers. And once I started working with him on this computer, uh, he started uh, taking me to uh, lunch. You know, they would uh, once a week. I think the course met uh, twice a week. And then one of the, at least one of those times we would have lunch with uh, Feynman. Mm -hmm. So... That was, a, you know, again, an you know, incredible experience because he would be talking about, you know, what he thought was, you know, the, 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 the most important thing in, in, in science, which, you know, some occasionally would be physics, but often, and especially stimulated by this course, would be things in computers or biology or whatever. You know, and again, it was, it was I, I, I could probably spill the whole, you know, <laughs> interview with, 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 with recollections of Feynman, but suffice it to say that he, you know, he was as, 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 as smart and as... Uh, inspiring as, as, uh, as, as his reputation. And uh, so then this uh, course, uh, let's see, I mean, again, it was, it was sort of uh, funny because it certainly wasn't a traditional computer science course. His, his, his goal was, you know, to the extent that he had a goal, it was to, to study the limitations or their physical limitations on computing that came directly from the laws of physics. And, and the basic one, which uh, had already kind of been established, was that if you, know, you, you, might, you might think, for example, you need to use a certain amount of energy to compute, to do a bit computation. And that turns out to be false. But what you do need is you need to use 
a, a certain you know, one half kT of free energy to erase a bit mm-hmm. in, in a computer. And if you do a reversible classical computation, you can avoid ever rever- erasing a bit. And in that sense, you, there is no minimum energy requirement, but ordinary computers would have this. And so he wanted to do the same thing for quantum mechanics. And like you know, two years before, he'd written this original article where he proposed the idea of uh, quantum computing. And then he basically developed enough of quantum computing in this course. It was about a month of the course, you know, the quantum computing part to uh, prove the same thing about uh, quantum mechanics. And uh, so, you know, again, just, you know, the idea that, you know, somebody could come out there and, you know, just create this, this, this new field in his, in his course, you know, which he didn't even care about publishing at that point. You know, I mean, it was just amazing. And, uh, you know, Sussman was, uh, you know, kind of a living, you know, embodiment of AI, as I think, you know, you know, several of these, you know, pioneers from, you know, the, the, the famous, you know, you know, places where it started, you know, were. And, and so you got this, you know, very strong sense of, of this, uh, you know, both the AI and the hacker community and, and, and how, how things had been, mm-hmm. you know, when, you know, in the 70s kind of, uh, you know, the, the you know, original, you know, hackers. And, uh, you know, and, you know and, and, and again, these kind of strange uh, ideas about how, you know, what, what, what the world will be like when, uh, you know, like, you know, the paint on your wall is intelligent, you know, and, and things that, uh, you know, again, you know, we're kind of used to these ideas, even though, you know, many people would still call them crazy, but at least they're, they're all crazy ideas, but they, they were certainly new to me and they were kind of new at that time. And uh, then Feynman thought Sussman was crazy. You know, it, that was clear. And in fact, I think he, I, I did, I, I'm pretty sure I heard him say it. <laughs> and uh, you know, and 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 he thought the other other people in AI were crazy. I tell this uh, story in the notes about uh, Doug Lanat and uh, his opinion of the of the Psych Project. And again, I, I'm not sure I have time to do all this justice, but he thought Lanat was crazy. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you know, he he was also confident that there were basic fundamental laws behind intelligence, which were probably different than the laws of physics, but that, uh, you know, this was what you should be seeking for. You should not be trying to type in all the facts of common sense knowledge, which, you know, most people in AI would not, you know, would, would, would also would agree with that point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, you know, and, and the point that you, you should be seeking these uh, more, uh, you know, fundamental laws of intelligence. And, and it's just it's striking that, you uh, there's still very little agreement as to what those fundamental laws might be after so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, just you talking about like Feynman's broad interests, yet, you know, able to go in depth with each of those interests. Do you think like yourself at the time, did it feel like you were getting pulled in multiple directions just because there were so much, so many interesting things going on or? Yeah, 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 potentially. I, I didn't even get into uh, Hopfield, you know, who was uh, uh, taking this, uh, you know, spin glass theory and applying it to, um, you know, get a model of uh, neurons, you know, and uh, he wanted to describe, like, uh, model the sense of sm- smell and the, the snail, how it remembers which things are, are good to eat. And uh, then that was a model you could analyze with uh, statistical mechanics techniques. And uh, I think, you know, looking back, there was enough, you know, coherence between these things. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, but, but you know, you know what, of course, what happened to me was that uh, in the summer of uh, 1984 came the same as a Green-Schwartz anomaly cancellation that convinced everybody that string theory was, uh, you know, this, this very magical theory that, that could well be uh, 
you know, the theory of everything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so, you know, this is, you know, was, uh, again, just, you know, an amazing thing that one, you know, John Schwartz was there at Caltech. And uh, so the opportunity to to work on that, you know, was was just, uh, you know, many, many of the, you know, grad students, uh, you know, followed that, uh, you know, those sirens. And, you again, it was worth, I mean, I look back and I, I certainly would have had, I think, a, 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 a more difficult time establishing myself if I had, and I can compare with the, you know, the people who were there and, and did stick with uh, neural networks and the uh, hot field. And then, of course, I would have had an infinitely harder time if I tried to work on, say, quantum computing. You know, so, it, you know, it, it, it's very hard to, you know, be the you know, the absolute pioneer, you know, when there's, you know, maybe three papers on the subject. And of course, quantum computing, you know, you know, you know, sure wouldn't be for 10 more years. And, uh, you know, things wouldn't, you know, even take off until much later. So, uh, so I think, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, I, I, it's possible to be, be torn in many directions. It was kind of a advantage and disadvantage of these directions were sufficiently uh, different that it was, you know, not really possible to combine them. And so I did wind up uh, sticking with uh, string theory through much of my career. Although I, I followed AI and kept up with people like uh, Sussman and uh, some of his students and, uh, you know, to some extent, Hopfield students, you know, throughout my career after that. And again, you can get a sense from this, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, you know the, the, the other text I put out, uh, the other memoir recollections about uh, my uh homage to David Mumford, you know, kind of expresses that, that, that side of my interest. But uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, once you get into the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the uh, tenure track and that uh, level of things, of course, you have to, uh, you have to focus and uh, you, of course, don't have time to follow all these interests. And, 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 and then after that, if the field you're working in is, really advancing really you're really discovering great things and of course you know you you know it's it's you you stick you stick with that and uh you know i, I would uh, i mean you, you in the questions i think you divide things up rightly into the first super string revolution the uh mm-hmm. second super string revolution and, and and then of course the the, the third event which i think has just as much importance in the history of superstring theory, even though it's not superstring, is the uh, turn on of LHC in 2009 and the non-discovery of a supersymmetry. Mm. And uh, so, just to uh, you know, briefly, you know, outline these things. So, this uh, Green-Schwartz anomaly cancellation I mentioned set off this uh, first superstring revolution. And without you know going into all detail, string theory was invented in the 70s for solving different problems than, you know, the, the ones that people mostly try to work on now. And uh, it uh, kind of like uh, the, you know, the perceptron, you know, these very early works on uh, neural networks, it became so deeply unfashionable that uh, John Schwartz, one of his creators, was a effectively a postdoc at Caltech for like uh, 13 years. They wouldn't give him a faculty position. And, uh, you know, maybe there were five people working on this around the world. And uh, so anyways, they, they, they quickly recognized in, in, in 1984, I mean, his big fan was uh, Marie Gilman in Caltech, that, uh, you know, this really was something. And of course, uh, the, the, I think the biggest uh, exponent who, who did the most to, to, you know, build string theory as we know it now was uh, Edward Witten, who 
no doubt. Uh, I, I think they did. They, I think they, Princeton did, uh, you know, tell John Schwartz they, they would hire him if Caltech didn't. But uh, anyways, uh, this this first uh, period was the one where people were convinced that string theory, you know, could be, you know, a sensible theory that really could describe the universe. And then the other ingredient, and that was this idea of compactification to say that the string theory predicts that there are nine dimensions of space and not three. And so what, what are these extra six dimensions? Well, mm -hmm. they could be very small. And this is an old idea due to a Kaluza and Klein. And uh, it actually does kind of under, you know, immediately predict certain things. Like if you start with uh, general relativity and you have one extra dimension, you can derive the existence of uh, electromagnetism. Again, that was a Kaluza and Klein's interest. And uh, then... People had tried this, you know, with with higher dimensions to get the other forces of nature, and then in 1985, uh, Witten, Candelas, showed that you know this really worked. If the six extra dimensions were what's called a, a Calabi-Yau manifold, and that you could get a theory out that uh, contained what was called you know grand unified theory, supersymmetry, could turn it could could agree with all the experimental data. Mm -hmm. So things worked on that level for for some years. And uh, then again, without going into great detail, the, the first revolution was, was establishing the, 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 this kind of work. And the second revolution was kind of the deep understanding and what we call a duality, this idea that uh, the same theory can have different definitions or different limits that uh, kind of connect together. And uh, the basic example of that is uh, the original example, what was called the... Uh, N equals four super Yang Mills theory that if you have uh, particles that uh, interact very weakly, you can use Feynman diagrams to calculate their interactions and predict you know what you know what collisions will happen. And once that coupling gets up to of order one, then what you're doing is a series expansion in the coupling. You're saying particle could interact once, twice, three times, and summing up this series. And of course, if the, you're summing up a series whose, you know, powers, you know, power of one, you know, that's not going to converge. But then it turns out that if you take it beyond one to be some very large number, then you have this duality transformation where you can take coupling goes to one over the coupling. So instead of a thousand, you change variables and you get a one over a thousand. And again, you can solve the theory. And it turned out that all the different versions of string theory people had come up with and this uh, you know, so-called M-theory or 11-dimensional supergravity all fit together this way. And then this kind of just convinced all the, certainly convinced all the string theorists and all the people doing 11 dimensions. But what was equally important from the point of view of the larger physics world is that you could use these ideas to solve lots of physics problems. And, and, and again, I think mm -hmm. the, the work that really pointed the way was what was called a Cyborg and Witten's, uh, <clears throat> you know, Nathan Cyborg was at Rutgers with me at the time in 1994. And Edward Witten solved a, a, another supersymmetric version of Yang-Mills theory. And uh, they used these uh, duality ideas. And then this one, you could show you know, that, that it could describe confinement, you know, so there have been this, uh, you know, puzzle since, you know, the 70s, since this idea, you know, of QCD was introduced, that quarks are somehow confined into hadrons, but nobody could really give a very satisfactory theoretical argument. You would do, like, you know, calculations on the computer and get evidence for it. And then in this uh, Cyborg-Witten solution, you could show that their theory had confinement, and it had it according to 
you know, the way that, you know, like one guy, you know, Stanley Mandelstam back at that time said, it works like this, you know, and it turned out, yeah, it works like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was very specific. And, uh, it, you know, then that, that threat, that, that strain of string theory continues that you can use these dualities to solve lots of problems and like even condensed matter physics and other branches of physics. And I actually believe that if Feynman hadn't, uh, you know, died, you know, relatively untimely, you know, you know 1988, if he had seen this, he, he still would not have liked string theory, but he would have said, yeah, you know, the string theory really did something for you. You know, this is actually kind of worth. And, and I did hear him talk about that in terms of other uh, developments. So, so at, at the time when I went, one of the other, uh, again, you know, unfashionable things to work on was this mathematical quantum field theory where you really try to prove everything rigorously and it's still kind of unfashionable and so i asked uh, Feynman at, 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 at some point uh, what he thought about that he's all oh, this is garbage you know they these people you know you you, you say you, you say something and then they they work hard and sometimes they can prove it but they never come up with you know anything of their own and uh, then then I said, oh, what do you think about the CPT theorem, which is this basic property of a symmetry, which, uh, you know, again, somebody had kind of said it, but it's, it's like one of these things which is so fundamental that you might not believe it if you didn't have like the real proof. And the real proof in this case is only like a couple of pages long. It's actually pretty mm -hmm. short. And the immediate practice is always, you're right, CPT theorem, that was pretty good. You know, so, so he was uh, quite willing to... Uh, give credit where credit was due and to change his, his thinking about things in an appropriate way. So my, my guess is, again, he would not be a, a fan of string theory, but it, this, this cyber-widden thing would have convinced him. Because after the course he taught on uh, you know the quantum computing and the rest, the next year he went back to teaching about confinement. And that was the problem that he uh, was working on towards the end of his life. You know, How do you explain this confinement? And to have somebody come along and, you know, here's my explanation of confinement where you can calculate something, he would have been impressed. Mm -hmm. Do you, yeah, could you go into why Feynman wouldn't like string theory? So does this get to the... Well, the basic thing is that he felt physics is, is an experimental science and that the theory is you know, essential, but that it, if, if you can't make contact with experiment, it, it doesn't really mean much. And, mm -hmm. you, know, he, he, you know, he had a very colorful... Uh, I, I knew him well enough that he, and he, he, he was my... Uh, uh, you know, my, my qualifying exam, which I was committee, which was about string theory. So he, he did try to tell me, you know, you know, you know, it's, it, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but kind of, you know, you're doing pretty well with string theory. It's, it's, it's too bad. You have to work on stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, so yeah, he, again, until string theory makes a contact with experiment, you know, he would not allow it. You know, he would not consider it really physics. But again, in this, this sense of a theoretical tool, it's made many contacts with experiments. In fact, it, after confinement, people have even discovered things in string theory and, and certain, that apply to certain experiments which were unexpected and then discovered in the experiment. So I think string theory has passed that test as a theoretical tool, but it certainly has not passed that test in terms of predicting anything about uh, gravity or about the standard model or these other laws. And, uh, you know, there, there are many reasons, but uh, probably the simplest reason is you know, this, this problem that once you have these extra dimensions, you have to postulate some structure, you know, there's some mm -hmm. six dimensional space. There are all these other structures that people came up with. And, you know, they're within the theory. They discovered them, you know, called fluxes and brains and stuff. And then there's many, many combinatorial choices as to how you 
you know, arrange these things. You know, first of all, what space? You know, there's millions of candidate spaces. And then, you know, these numbers like 10 to the 500 and 10 to the mm -hmm. 1,000, editorial ways of arranging the other stuff. And uh, so we don't have any principle that uh, tells us what's the right choice. Mm -hmm. And uh, so even if we had perfect mathematical ability to calculate things, we would still have trouble making any predictions. And so people have, you know, various uh, reactions to that. And uh, one of them is to say, well, maybe there's, you know, some, some property of the real world or some property of what we'll discover, which we can show, can't come out of string theory, which, you know, again, is a reasonable thing to look for. But the, the, the things people have come up with in that vein are, are, are not, not really that, that interesting. An example, well, I mean, well, I, mean I, I actually worked on one of these, which, which I would say is at least has, has content mm -hmm. experimentally. There was this idea that uh, Dirac proposed that the fine structure constant might be varying with time. And uh, so, like, you know, when you see the, the redshift of, of, you know, the distant galaxies, maybe it's not, you know, quite what you think it is because the fine structure constant is varying with time. And then you can show with uh, just fairly simple assumptions in string theory that uh, that's almost certainly not possible in string theory. You know, so that's an example of something that at least people thought maybe they could discover. You know, people certainly did experiments looking for evidence that define structural constant changes with time. And then we would have said, oh, if you, if you really do see that, then you've probably disproven string theory. So, so that would be one approach. But uh, then I, 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 I followed and to some extent proposed this other approach, which uh, came out of uh, ultimately uh, the subject of uh, quantum cosmology. But uh, you know, again, as I described in this, uh, you know, kind of Mumford or reminiscence. My own starting point from this was, was a little different. And uh, so uh, there was a kind of a conjunction of, uh, in 2000, there was this paper by Raphael Busso, who's at uh, Berkeley and the late uh, Joe Polchinski, making, there's there's this proposal for solving the cosmological constant problem, which uh, Many people had, had kind of articulated Steve Weinberg, particularly clearly the late Steve Weinberg, mm -hmm. and it's to say that uh, so uh, so there's this problem of why is the energy of the vacuum so small, and there's a solution that has to do with the anthropic principle that says well maybe there's just like ten to one hundred twenty different vacua which all have the whole range of possible values of the vacuum energy you know just kind of scanning across it and then. If you can show that, and, and, and Weinberg in particular showed that uh, if the vacuum energy is only 100 times as large as what we have, then the universe will either uh, blow apart, expand too quickly, or recollapse too quickly, and we can't have galaxies, and we can't have life, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so just the fact that we exist and observe the universe is some argument that the cosmological constant has to be small. So maybe all these other universes exist in some meta way, but we exist in a universe that, that we can observe. And, and then Busso and Polkinski argued that, yes, this can happen given the extra dimensions of uh, string theory. And, and their argument, uh, the, the short version, is that these, these extra six-dimensional space can have like hundreds of uh, homology cycles, topological structures, and then hundreds of these different fluxes, and then that leads to these combinatorial numbers like 10 to the 100. And mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it, again, it's one of these ideas I, I'd heard a lot about long before and somehow was attracted to. And uh, then I had also been following, you know, AI at some you know, level, you, you know, again, long story. And to my mind, again, from some distance, 
the striking thing about the 90s was that if you look at the uh, period before, there was a like, uh, you know, there were the biologists working on it, and there were the physicists working on it, and there were, you know, the applied mathematicians working on it. And then in the 90s, they all kind of realized that, well, you know, machine learning really is the heart of it is statistics, you know, I mean, it has relations to all these other fields, but basically it's a problem of statistical inference, you know, and, you know, so for, you know, so for the statisticians, that may not have been any big news, but, you know, for the biologists and the physicists and the others, that was, you know, kind of, you know, there were already things to learn, just, you know, like I didn't take statistics in undergrad. Again, it was not like it was unfashionable. It just was felt not as deep perhaps as other areas of applied math. And, uh, so, so then you, 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 you realize that, well, you know, statisticians, statisticians know lots of uh, very relevant and uh, useful stuff. And this was, uh, you know, the, the book that to my mind best uh, illustrates that is uh, a book from about 2000 by uh, David Mackay, who, who uh, was another uh, kind of Caltech uh, neural, a bit after my time. But uh, he started out in physics with Hopfield, and he wanted he, he wound up writing a, a very good textbook about uh, Bayesian methods and statistics and their kind of transition into machine learning. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, uh, you know, as I mentioned in this, uh, you know, this, this, this reminiscence, you know, David Mumford, this famous algebraic geometer, also was one of the people. He, he had gone to uh, start basically a second career in, in, in machine learning, and he went to uh, Brown. And then this was the the general you know uh, philosophy at uh, Brown. He he you know so he he was also working along these lines. And and so I was you know learning all this statistics you know at the same time you know not writing any papers. And so it was very natural to say well rather than try to construct possible extra dimensional spaces and work out their predictions, what we really want is the statistical distribution of predictions so that we know what are the likely ones. You know and then and then. Uh, yeah, yeah, not not like a absolutely new idea, but new to actually do it from string theory, where you actually use real methods of string theory as opposed to just you know postulating these distributions and talking about them, which was what the previous work had done. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that that was you know in in my own kind of uh, development, uh, you know, a, a, a fairly direct influence from. Uh, uh, my, my work on related, at least, you know, following machine learning and AI that went into physics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is kind of amazing that all the, or I guess like based on what you said, most of this string theory was initially built up with separate tools than what you'd use in machine learning. Now that these statistical methods are more uh, widespread and more people know them, do you see this as having some large impact on the future of string theory? Well, that's a that's a question that one can take in many directions, and of course, uh, you know, the fundamentals of uh, physics and, and string theory are quantum mechanical, and uh, so one direction you could take it would be to really develop the, the quantum analog and then some sort of quantum machine learning and look for principles there that carry over. I mean, I mean, some of the classical stuff is potentially useful, but there has not been. A lot of like you know I could I could send you a couple of interesting papers, but not not, not a lot learned. But basically, because the real problem is is is, is quantum mechanical. Mm-hmm. Now another uh, thing you can do, of course, is use it from a very practical way and say you know I have a particular mathematical problem I want to solve to understand string theory, and now let me throw that into you know let me try to fit 
you know, some subset of answers with a, uh, you know, feed forward network and see if I can predict the other answers or let me search for a, a vacuum configuration of string theory by using some reinforcement learning uh, search algorithm. You know, there's mm -hmm. a, a lot of things like this. And then this, of course, sits in this uh, larger question of, well, how will AI affect the way that we do research in the mathematical sciences more broadly? And I spent in the last, uh, you know, couple of years, quite a lot of time thinking about that. So, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, again, from the, from the point of view of, I have a, I'm a string theorist with a mathematical problem. Well, you know, you know get in line. You know, all, all the, all the, all the scientists have their mathematical problems, and uh, <laughs> you know, the string theory ones have particular particulars about them. But you know, the other ones are just as interesting. And uh, you know, these tools are obviously of 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 of, of great generality. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I think it clearly will very much affect the way we do our research. And it will affect it sooner, I believe, than we have artificial general intelligence, which obviously will affect everything and as yet difficult to uh, foresee or comprehend uh, ways. But uh, I think, uh, you, know, to, you know, obviously the ability of the computer to you know, solve a problem, which maybe a, a person could also solve, but would have taken time. And, you know, again, I mean, a, a lot of the present, but I believe a lot of the advantage of, 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 of computing is making what only a few people can do with difficulty, something which is accessible to many people with relative ease, you know, and, you know, so like some, you know, symbolic mathematics is like that, you know, and it's true, you, you can use mathematics to do calculations that, uh, you know, involve, you know, millions of equations and uh you know but but you can also use it to do fairly simple calculations that you could have done you know on, on, on pencil and paper just it might have taken you a week and now you can do it in an hour and that also really changes the way people work and think and then allows them to you know operate on a sort of a higher level you know a higher level of abstraction and uh, then another aspect of this which i think i i see as one of the big challenges that might see a, a big advance in, 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 in the near future is that uh, the, the problem of finding uh, precise results, both, you know, mathematical results, algorithms, uh, you know, library routines. I mean, uh, the, 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 the usual way I describe this is a computer science way to say that, well, suppose you're programming and you've got some problem which you can, you know, explain in a fairly general way. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, you know, but not, 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 not your, your overall problem, but, you know, like, uh, you know, you know, take, take a file and, uh, you know, you know, read it in and, you know, among the, according to these definite rules, it, it's very likely that in the, uh, you know, some, you know, library, like the Py, the Python package repository, it's already there, you know, people have already implemented, you know, there's, there's, there's you know, hundreds of thousands of programmers out there, you know, everything which is kind of obvious enough that you can say it without having to, you know, write you know, work hard and, you know, write a paper to articulate your idea. Mm -hmm. Somebody else has already not just thought about it, but implemented it. But, and, and, and people do use a lot of, you know, you know, compared to, you know, when I, I learned programming, you know, I mean, again, again, you know, Jerry Sussman, you know, famously taught a six double one using his language of scheme for many years, but they don't use it anymore. They use Python mm -hmm. because it's a much more useful thing to be able to use that big, Python package repository than to have the elegance of a scheme. You know, Python is not really elegant, but it's got that huge uh, software base. Mm -hmm. But uh, then, 
you still have this question of, well, okay, you know, how do I, 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 I state my problem. I have some concept. How do I actually find the, the code that does it? And, uh, you know, again, if you learned it in a course, if you, you know, if it, it's a, especially if it's something that's already got a name, you can just search for the name, but uh, that's, you know, has, has its limits. And of course the other extreme is where you did discover some new concept. Okay, so you're, you're a mathematician now, let's say, and you've proven a new theorem or you have a new definition. But, you know, is it really new? You know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and now it's actually very hard because you can try the, you know, there's really no name you can search for. And you can try the analogous thing of typing in, you know, formulas or English language descriptions into Google and it won't work at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that kind of uh, what I would call semantic search where you could say, uh, you know, here's my, you know, here's here's my you know, proposition or in some, you know, some sort of, you know, formalized idea of concept, search for that, yeah. you know, then, then uh, I kind of think that's, you know, it's not a problem we know how to solve. I, I kind of think that we will have a big progress on that problem by the end of uh, this decade. Mm-hmm. And that that will already, it won't be like it will totally change the way we think, but it will mean that uh, we'll have a much, much greater ability to build on each other's work because we'll be able to find it first of all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like for that problem, it's difficult to evaluate. Like if you're developing a method to do this semantic search, and then you have to evaluate whether it actually returns something which is novel and unproven. How do you how do you get the ground truth of that? Well, I mean the ground. Well, I mean, I mean, I, I think the other side of this. That's right. I mean, I mean, one can work in it in a sort of an unsystematic way, but uh, the real ground truth is to have uh, formal definitions of. So you, you know, mm-hmm. there's there's a list of concepts out there you know, on the web or in your database. Now we've presented a new one, and you know, let's say proposition, and uh, then you know, the the ground truth basically is that everything gets formalized, and that your thing either is provable in a relatively simple way from what's out there, or it's not. Right. Yeah, that makes and, sense. And, uh, so, so I, I do think that's right. It's hard to work on this problem without somewhat better ability to do, uh, you know, automatic and interactive theorem proving than what we have. But I, I, that is also making significant advances. Uh, you know, for example, you know, this work at, uh, you know, OpenAI, GPTF, and you know, m- right. many other groups. Of course, so Christian Zegedi's group at uh, Google. You know, many other groups and. Uh, trying to uh, use AI and machine learning to automate uh, theorem proving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think those things fit together. You, 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 you're right. You need, you, you need the one to, to, to make the search really both solid and to have a big enough, uh, you know, as, as, as a clear enough ground truth that, that you can, you know, you know the, the, the thing will work. But I think both of those things are coming. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think that it's possible that these proof assistance will become kind of the way of doing science? Or do you think that they'll kind of be used, like you're saying, to verify things as kind of a um, post-processing step? If you see what I'm saying, like people will... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, think, I, think, I think there'll be some of both, but I think they will be increasingly the, you know, the uh, statement of, of results in mathematics. I mean, right now it's just too hard to, 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 to verify everything. But mm-hmm. if it were, uh, you know, if, if you could, you know, verify the, the theorem you just proved in 
time comparable to the time it now takes you to write your paper. I think people would actually put that much, you know, they would spend twice as much time to have something which was uh, formally verified, especially again, if it, if it came with, you know, other advantages that, uh, you know, you, you know, people can search for it and you, you can confidently build on, uh, you know, the previous work because it was also verified this way. I mean, there's this, this point of view from the, uh, the point of view of a real, a working pure mathematician is is very uh, articulately expressed by uh, Kevin Buzzer. You know, mm -hmm. he has a colloquium, and uh, I think uh, some of this has been uh, is available on the web. Uh, he he describes the situation of uh, where you know both the theorem and the counterexample are in the published math literature, and it's, it's, it's you know it's, it's it's not a rare thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be pretty amazing if there was some kind of common repository where you're kind of adding to this repository of knowledge and then it's really easy to search for things yeah. and yeah, yeah yeah and you can see it starting i mean like this community that uh, is building the uh, lean uh, mathematics library they they feel that they're doing some version of that and of course it's still hard to use it's not a big community but uh yeah, you, you certainly get a sense of uh, you know you know what 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 will come once that kind of thing is easier to use mm -hmm. Do you yeah. think that another thing I was curious about is like with string theory, so it's like more mathematical, I guess, or it, it's fairly mathematical, but is it at the level of rigor where you could formalize everything or for like string most theory? Of it, most, most, yeah. most of it is not. I, no. I mean, even quantum theory has not really been proper, well, well-defined uh, mathematically. Again, it come, kind of goes back to this, you know, there, 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 there was a community that, that has tried to do this and it seemed that the problem was was again they, they got results but th they were not commensurate to the effort that that they had to put into these uh, to get to get these results uh -huh. and uh, so uh, so I think that's the that that that's the that's the next step in, in, in this project it's conceivable that there's some other way to define to define string theory but most of the ways we know use quantum field theory as an essential uh, step. And uh, so the problem of making that rigorous is, is, is very important. Mm. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean it's still, it's, it's like it's, the mathematicians consider it kind of hard and complicated. The most promising thing I've seen in, in, in recent years is, is, is there's this work of a Martin Herod, this, uh, you know, mathematician who won the Fields Medal who has a fairly... Uh, different way of, of treating stochastic uh, PDE. He, he, he's formalized that in ways which are much more powerful than what had previously existed. And so I, I, I do think it's, it's, a, it's a problem that you know, will, will be solved and will have an impact. They have a, a really usable formalization of, of quantum field theory and then string theory would, would come fairly quickly after that. But no, we're not there now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and certainly even without formalizing the entire subject, this semantic search that you were mentioning could still be useful to someone who's just yeah. you know, working on a problem. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. You don't need to formalize the whole thing. Right. I mean, it, there, there is actually, I, I can send you a link. I, I, you know, there is this kind of question of, uh, you know, it's a little tangential. So, mm -hmm. so when you, if you talk about formalizing physics, then, uh, you can, on the one hand, of course, we have the, the existing foundations of mathematics, starting with uh, you know, ZFC and building up uh, you mm -hmm. know, the real numbers and space and uh, differential equations and all this. But you can actually step back and say, well, you know, we never measure a real number. You know, why, why did I have to formalize real number to, uh, 
talk about physics. And you could step back and say, I'm, I'm going to make my starting point for my formalism things that I can observe, you know, and uh, I'm going to uh, really start again. And it's true, you know, real number is kind of a, a natural idealization that, that, that comes out. If I do the infinite series of measurements, in some sense, I approach a real number. But uh, it's, not, it's not the primary thing. And I, I, I actually do think that thinking about physics and trying to make this type of formalization would teach us something about both in math and physics. What are the differences between physics, mathematics, and computation? Do these kind of require different mindsets to do? Or can we say something which distinguishes these three areas from each other? Well, I, I mean, there's the evident distinction of the uh, subjects. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. physics is a you know is, a, is, a, is an empirical science, and uh, you know, perhaps the difference between mathematics and computation is is less uh, clear. Perhaps that difference will evolve with uh, time, and you know, within each field, of course, there are many valid ways of uh, thinking, many fruitful ways. Let's see. I mean, uh, I, I think it's also interesting uh, not just to distinguish the three fields, which which co-evolve, but to distinguish the uh, stages of evolution of a uh, subfield. So mm. one goes through some exploratory period at the beginning when uh, the, you know the, the field becomes possible at all, and uh, people have uh, what in retrospect might be you know, this vast uh, variety of ideas, you know, some wild, some, you know, you know many important. And uh, that uh, phase uh, inevitably, I think, uh, slows down. It can't literally end, but certainly the uh, shape of the field is set. And uh, then there's some phase of uh, development where, uh, you know, people feel that there are interesting problems. They, 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 they have some sense. Of course, it can change with the fashion, and they, they work them out. They, they develop them. And, of course, a subfield can become mature. And uh, then you can see, I think, in all three areas, you know, this, this pattern playing out in subfields. And I think uh, different styles of thinking are, you know, particularly good at you know, one or the other phase. And so people are drawn to, you know, the subfields that, that fit the way that they think. Mm-hmm. I've, I've always been more of a explorer. And of course, the word I used was a adventurer in the, uh, you know, Feynman, uh, you know, text that I uh, sent you. And uh, then, uh, you know, it turned out uh, that, you know, string theory was right in that phase in the, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the most uh, fruitful part of my career, which I'd say is the 90s. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's clear, for example, that uh, deep learning is, is, is I mean, there was important development of ideas then in the uh, 90s exploratory, but it was much harder to know what would work, what was the uh, scope. You know, again, if you look back, I think in, in, in almost any field, maybe less in math, but a parallel between physics or string theory and uh, deep learning is that it's very hard to evaluate the ideas when they are immediately proposed. And the real excitement comes, of course, when it's possible to uh, connect the ideas and either evaluate them you know, experimentally in the case of uh, deep learning, because computers got to the point where we could do that, or in terms of some sort of uh, deep uh, structure 
with what happened in that string theory. Yeah, kind of loosely related. So I I'd come across this book before by Sussman, uh, who you right. worked with, called Structure and Interpretation of Classical Mechanics. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah. I think the the difference here is that you learn the different concepts by actually programming, and so you have to that's have right. something that's executable and then it's you that's know right. checkable. That's right. What do you, as a physicist, like what do you think of this? approach is it yeah, that's yeah. right that, that, that that's 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 a very good I, I i use that example in in in, in my talk about you know math mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> so that's right i mean it has strengths and weaknesses i mean you don't get stuck you know if you're stuck on something you can look down into the absolute you know detailed definition mm-hmm. and you know people often do get stuck students you know do you know you know you know the, the, the you know, the pipeline starts out wide and gets narrower and narrower. And so uh, on, on some level, it's a big help. And uh, on the other hand, it's true also that to really understand something, you have to work at uh, multiple levels. You have to understand some details. You have to understand some sort of big picture. You have to be able to connect these things. And, uh, you know, certainly the, the, the system, the software that uh, Sussman uh, developed and used, much focuses on the details and you really have to work hard to get the details right. And then I, I think in practice that does come at the cost of, uh, of the big picture and of the breadth, you know, that you would get by having more intuitive arguments. And that's a, a, mm-hmm. a main reason why most, I think it's fair to say most uh, theoretical physicists, most mathematicians don't really like that style. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the other hand, I think the answer is again, the same thing that uh, <clears throat> if you have a system that can work, you know, on a, on a formal and rigorous level that automates most of the steps, then then you get the advantages and you, you much mitigate the disadvantages. You don't have to look at that level of detail unless you don't understand something and then it's there. Right. So I think he's ahead of his time in doing that. And again, once we have that technology of, of pretty reliable, uh, you know, interactive theorem proving, you know, then this will become the uh, preferred style of uh, textbooks and teaching. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, since we're on the thesis review, this this has been really fascinating, but I should probably throw in one question about your PhD thesis. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, well, that, that's right. I mean, I, I, I wrote my thesis uh, very quickly, you know, in like a month, and mm. it came out of like some... We started a discussion group at the, at the, the grad students at Caltech wanted to learn conformal field theory, and uh, nobody was teaching it. And uh, then, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I, again, I think the the environment in which I was working, I, you know, I always think the, the best sign, you know, when you go into a, a department or you know a group, uh, some research group, you know, the best sign is if the grad students are all talking to each other and working together and not spending so much time talking to the professors, you know, but that's mm-hmm. a, that's a great sign. And uh, so, so we were, you know, at least, you know, our, our group was doing some of that and that was the kind of spirit that we <clears throat> tried to encourage at uh, Rutgers. So I did, you know, and, 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 and then the, the method of that thesis did kind of illustrate a method I would come back to over and over again, which was to take some sort of a complicated problem that people had done careful work on and just say, well, yeah, maybe this, this, this simple way of doing it, you know, I mean, who knows, it's, maybe it's too simple, but mm-hmm. uh, it's worth a try. And, uh, you know, then, you know, sometimes that doesn't work and sometimes that does work. And and sometimes it partly works. And in fact, in the case of uh, this, this thesis, the first version of I wrote was, was the, the basic idea was right, 
And uh, on the other hand, the, 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 I, the, the details were a little too simple and it required a correction. And uh, then the whole thing from some kind of uh, larger point of view got subsumed into a, you know, kind of, instead of trying to solve the whole problem, solve like an interesting part of the problem that uh, Eric Berlinde, another mm-hmm. physicist, kind of developed uh, short, shortly after. So the thesis didn't have, I don't, I don't think it had any significant impact later. But, uh, you know, sort of it, did, it did get me noticed. And mm-hmm. uh, again, I think uh, in terms of uh, practice of uh, this, this style of, of, of working, you know, try to try out simple, simple versions of something complicated, you know, but, uh, you know, you know, you know simple, 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 not in the sense of a toy model, but simple in the sense of maybe, you know, we can, we can weaken the assumptions or we can maybe strengthen the assumptions in some way that makes all the arguments simpler. Mm-hmm. But so that's that's something I, I I think I've I've done quite a bit in my work. Yeah, yeah. I I might be grasping at at straws here, but I was trying to think of some in the broadest sense. Yeah. That, that's right. The GNAs are groups, and uh, you know, not it wasn't the only. I mean, I mean, the the the, the framework that that led into this non-commutative geometry was called, called operator algebras, which is in fact uh, the uh, you know the, the the subfield that my father. Uh, Specialized in, and in fact, he he introduced me to you know Alan Kahn, who I would work with later when I was uh, eight years old. He brought us to no nine years old. He brought us to a school at uh, Les Uches that had been you know organized for this subject, and you know he and Alan Kahn were young then, and of course I was very young. But uh, you know Alan, Alan Kahn, you know, remembered that, and uh, you know that was part of my my going to Les Uches again in in ninety five, and then you know writing this paper with him and. Albert Schwartz, but uh, yeah, I mean, again, the, 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 these are such kind of broad concepts based on uh, group theory and uh, right. lead groups. And, you know that that, that I think uh, on, on some level, you know, you, you don't need to draw that that kind of a link. <laughs> I mean, the, the 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 I mean, the groups, of course, uh, are so broad. You know, there are they have value in uh, machine learning, and of course, there's these works of uh, you know uh, you know. Group group equivariant uh, convolutional neural networks, you know, people like that, you know, Cohen and Welling and so forth. Uh, so it's 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 a kind of a universal language if you have symmetry. Okay, yeah, yeah. I thought I'd just throw throw yeah. something yeah. in there. So when this unification happened in this in super string theory, so this sorry the second super string revolution, right. did it seem at the time like a an event that occurred and then everything shifted? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's an excellent question. That's right. And the, the analogy to deep learning. So that's right. No, definitely it was an event. So there was this uh, conjecture about the, I, I referred to it, you know, this duality of N equals four super Yang Mills. And that was an idea that was proposed in like 1978. And everybody thought it was crazy. And in fact, I, I do recall as a postdoc, uh, going around and asking some people about this, and they said, oh, that's crazy. And, uh, you know, then, uh, you know, there were other people that thought, well, maybe it's true, but there's no way we can really know. And uh, then there was this uh, physicist, Ashok Sen, who, uh, you know, came up with a way of actually studying, you know, deriving consequences of this duality that you could really test mathematically. And, uh, 
you know, and then this is what attracted weight and started to attract people that this was something they could actually work on. And I, I even asked Ashok Sam because this really was a moment. You know, this was like a, a, a crucial discovery in 1993. And I asked him, so why, you know, what, what got you to think that? And, uh, you know, he, he said, well, you know, I was just working on this problem about counting certain kinds of black holes. You know, I, I can't even remember how exactly, you know, I got on this, you know, so this, this crucial idea just came out of, uh, you know, technical problems and trying to solve them. And uh, anyways, uh, you know, these ideas started to uh, fit together and uh, snowball. It led to this Cyborg-Witten work I, I, I spoke about. Uh, it led to the M-theory. There was this period of about uh, two, you know, two, three years, you know, between uh, 94 and 96 that every, every couple months, you know, some, somebody would write a paper, usually Witten, but not always Witten that would just revolutionize us. Like we, you know, we, we have, we had this group meeting at Rutgers and we say, you know, we got to start over, you know, so, you know, both we wrote this paper about D brains, you know, now everything is different. You know, every, you know, he's answered half of our questions, you know? Yeah. And so, yes, it was just no mistake, you know, that was by far the, you know, the highlight of my scientific career and I'm sure many others. And if that comes in deep learning, you know, maybe, I mean, I, I actually think what we're in now still is closer to the first uh, super string revolution than the uh, second, mm -hmm. because uh, although it's true, we, you know, you, you hear about AlphaGo and you say, wow, you know, there's all, the, all these new things are, seem possible, but we don't really understand it very deeply. I mean, we have a lot of insight into, uh, you know, you know, again, like you, you definitely can can understand it. this algorithm works because it gets this aspect of the statistics right, and this other algorithm didn't, and it doesn't work so well. So on that level, we understand a lot. But I do think there are some deeper principles, as is, of course, many many people you know have you know you know w would believe, and that they do remain to be discovered, and that that will be the uh, second revolution. And you know, again, to throw out an idea about uh, what what we're missing. You know, again, if you look at the uh, statistics and the uh, AI and pattern recognition of the 90s, you know, when I was following it then, it was it was very much based on the idea of priors, you know, so people would come up with these, you know, if you wanted to study vision, you would come up with this uh, model of, uh, you know, generating images, you know, that, that uh, you, know, you know, you know, generates, uh, you know, objects, puts objects in front of each other, according to some very, you know, clear, you know, generative uh, model. And, uh, you know, so very good. And then you can, you know, design features that are informed by, you know, your, your model. And then, of course, uh, that's not generally how deep learning works. And you have people now like uh, Yang Kun who quite correctly say, well, you know, now you don't need to do any features. You know, the model just learns the features, you know, and mm -hmm. it's just you know, big enough model and it's general enough, you know, the, the less, the, you know, the fewer features you put in, the better, you know, and uh, that's true. And why is that? You know, how does that work? You know, that's just, just one of these uh, several intuitions from the statisticians, which kind of uh, wasn't wasn't quite, you know, what at the very least wasn't wasn't put, put, pointing us in the right direction. And so, when we can really convincingly answer questions like that, I think that will be that will show that we're in this uh, second revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, the first, broadly speaking, is kind of about the promise of the method, and then. The second was about yeah, but not yeah. just promise, showing that it works. So, so definitely, we were in this first revolution of showing that the methods really have this broad applicability; they really work. And then the second is the, 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 the deeper understanding. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's two questions I always end the thesis review with, but maybe before that, just if you want to like just briefly um, talk about where where you see 
the string theory going or your interests in improving the scientific process and mathematics and AI just into the future? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not as actively working on string theory right now. And in fact, I, I think the most interesting uh, side of the field isn't really string theory. It's these, these uh, attempts to somehow connect uh, quantum information theory with the structure of uh, space-time and uh, black hole information paradox and so forth. And, uh, you know, that, that, that has at least a, this, this sense of exploration that we, you know, we have questions, you know, very simple questions that we don't know how to think about, much less, you know, knowing the answer. And so that might lead to uh, some, some great discoveries. And uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, I, I, I think the, the, the progress on the questions that I, I, I thought most about, we need more, we need some sort of experimental breakthrough, you know, yeah. and, and you, know, you know, again, you know, for, for me, I, you know, I, I, I gradually came to see the importance of having some, you know, solid or, you know, experimental tie. And I, I, I more than the other candidates chose this one of uh, the collider physics of the LHC and supersymmetry. And of course that one was beyond us. It turned out we were, that was not the moment where we could discover and, uh, you know, something else will come along. There's this problem called the Hubble tension. Maybe, maybe people will discover the actual content of uh, dark matter. You know, there are many directions. People have many more directions now that they look for the uh, next discovery. And I think that's that'll be the, the moment that uh, me and many other people kind of, again, pick up, uh, pick up our ears and say, yeah, somebody's going to say something really important thing now that we know some experimental fact that we're trying to make a contact with. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, you know, again, this is a much broader problem about, uh, you know, AI, how will AI, uh, you know, help us do our research? How will it evolve in the uh, future? Let, let's see. I mean, I mean, what I've been doing lately is, 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 is partly trying to forecast that and to say, well, mm -hmm. you know, what, what should, you know, I as a physicist or as a, you know, say as a mathematician be doing. I mean, I mean, one kind of, you know, I think negative way to look at it would be to say, you know, like, you know, at, at this stage in my career, I could write a textbook, you know, I could say, you know, here's, here's my point of view. Here's all these techniques that I have for solving all these problems. But then I step back and say, well, you know, it, it's, it's quite likely that in 10 years and very, very likely that in 20 or 30 years, uh, all these techniques will be, problems that people consider very easy because they'll just type it into their computer, you know, and the computer will do most of the work. So is that the right level to work on? Or do I want to somehow achieve that higher, the higher level that, that will be relevant then? Because of course the people will still be in the loop, you know, I mean, the people, you know, certainly I don't think we'll have AGI in, you know, 10 or 20 years, we might, mm -hmm. but people are going to be formulating the questions. People are going to be giving the talks and the judging and uh, so they'll just be working on this higher level. They have this much enhanced capability to solve well-posed problems thanks to the help of the computer. And so what is that higher level that they'll be working on? So that, that's, that, that's the question that I, I try to think about and try to, uh, you know, if I, if, if I could write something sensible about that. I mean, that's, 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 those are kind of the thoughts I was struggling towards in this, the, the, the talk I gave about mathematics in 2030. And I think that, mm -hmm. that that's a very timely question now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is an interesting way of thinking about it. Like, is, is the contribution uh, about 
uh, I mean, like if you were to contribute a textbook um, nowadays, it might actually be more meaningful to do something else that uh, could prove to last longer. And, and that is maybe why you're interested in this. Uh, yeah, that's right. So exa exactly. Yeah. So you might say, you know, I'm not going to write a textbook on, let's say, take group theory, something relatively well understood, useful for many areas of you know, mathematical science, mm -hmm. you know, rather than, you know, write the nth textbook, I could, I could write a software package, right, that mm -hmm. does all these things. In group theory. And there are people that do that. But then that also has its problems that they, they tend to be kind of clumsy, they tend to be hard to really learn the subject just by, you, know, you certainly, I would not give a student of group theory the manual to a, a software package that implements group theory. But uh, there should be a way of describing group theory in a computational way, kind of the stream that you know Jerry Sussman and Jack Wisdom had, which does what they wanted, but doesn't require so much work on all the details, you know, that, that uh, you, know, you can use it both uh, to uh, gain, to really learn the subject, to gain insight and type the things into the computer. I, I believe, I believe that, you know, that is the direction that we'll be trying to develop. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, yeah, so there's two questions, um, one about objective functions and one about advice that I always end the thesis okay. review with. So if you could look back to during your PhD days, um, would you say that, and if you had to come up with an objective function that described, you know, what you were doing, so was it scientific exploration, uh, what would that objective function be? And then what would you say it is now? Okay, well, yeah, I mean, very different stages of my career. I mean, and, uh, you know, again, as, as a, you know, Caltech, and they, this was before, you know, obviously, you know, email was, was relatively new. This was before the archive, you know, this was the mid 80s. I mean, uh, so uh, I would say, on some level, the objective function became, uh, you know, do something which would yeah, I mean, I mean, as as, as students at, at, at doing string theory at Caltech, we all kind of looked to Princeton as the center of the universe at that moment because mm -hmm. it was in string theory. And so to do something that those people would consider important, and uh, that was a hard objective function because it was not obviously very concrete. And uh, I, I, I did succeed with this GMOD age thing, but I don't know whether. You know that was uh, you know again it's hard to quite draw the the, the connection, and uh, then my objective function, I think, evolved towards this thing of I mean one way I like to say it is that if you can get away with it, and again it depends on what field you're in. It's, it's more th something you can do more as a theorist. It's something you can do in an exploratory phase and not so much in the more mature phase of a field, but. Uh, you should try to work on a problem where people know zero, because then if you discover epsilon, you've made a huge hmm. proportionate increase in our knowledge. And uh, of course, the, the danger is that you, you have no starting point and you discover zero. But if you can discover epsilon, people notice that. Yeah, and most, you know, because again, we're all human. It's hard to do much more than epsilon in one paper. And so if you are adding epsilon to one, that's not so impressive. But, you know, turning zero into epsilon, people notice. So uh, that would be, again, if I had to state uh, an objective function, it would be you know, work on something which is just at the cusp where you can state something precise. You know, because, because again, you could, you could be a philosopher. You could state just you know, pure intuitions. And some people make uh, great progress that way too. But my own is you know, just something on the cusp where you can make some 
mathematically precise version of it and, and at least uh, if not solve it get some solid result you know and, and, and try to work on that because that's uh, that's turning zero into epsilon and uh, then uh, the advice equally general that I, I, I just gave my son who's starting uh, grad school in physics at Harvard and I would always give people is to say that uh, you know as a especially I think in any in any science and probably most other things you have to have something that you're very good at, you know, some sort of space, you know, where you have this very solid foundation that you can work and, uh, you know, truly be an expert. But then you also have to be broad in the sense of uh, reading or talking to lots of people and hearing and knowing about lots of things, you know, not on that expert level necessarily, but at least in some correct, if simplified way. And you need both things to succeed. You can't, you can't do it with just one. And how you how one combines those two requirements can be very individual, but but you know you have to think about it, and then you know people find their ways. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna remember that about the uh, epsilon plus zero versus epsilon plus one or epsilon plus a very large number. That's a good way of looking at things. Okay, well yeah, thank, thanks so much for doing this conversation. It was really fascinating. I, I learned a lot getting ready for this. And um, it was cool to hear all these different stories and influences that you had from your days at Caltech and then how that kind of propagated into the other work that you've done. And um, yeah, there's just way too much to talk about. So thanks for taking the time to do this interview. Well, thanks. I enjoyed it.